We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. I want to remind the audience that this is a rapidly evolving topic in medicine and healthcare, and so anything you're hearing today may have changed by the time uh, you're listening to it. My guest today is Dr. Todd Foreman. Dr. Foreman is a partner at Foreman Family Medicine and a fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians. Dr. Foreman received his undergraduate degree from Harvard University, his medical degree from the UCLA School of Medicine, and he completed his residency at UCLA Santa Monica Hospital and then received a master's degree in medical education from the Keck USC School of Medicine. In addition to his clinical practice, Dr. Foreman is active in medical education as an assistant clinical professor at the USC Keck School of Medicine. Dr. Foreman has a unique musical background as well. From 1988 to 1996, he played saxophone for the band Sublime before pursuing a career in medicine. In 2005, he started playing music again after a 10-year hiatus. From 2009 to 2011, he joined the original lineup of Sublime with Rome for a world tour and built a home music studio. In 2013, he formed Jelly of the Month Club to make music for children and families, playing shows at schools, hospitals, community events, resorts, and Knott's Berry Farm in Southern California, playing along with Snoopy and the Peanuts Gang. In 2019, Dr. Foreman formed the Moxie Brothers music production team with Adrian Young, the drummer from the band No Doubt. Todd, thank you for joining me on this podcast. You've always had a super interesting background that's woven music with medicine. Um, is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience about yourself or your medical practice? Um, no, that was a uh, pretty uh, all-consuming, and uh, I just want to thank you for for allowing me to join you today on your uh, epic podcast. It's my pleasure, Todd. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy life to to do this for the public. Um, I'd like to start, Todd, just by talking about your journey to medicine and your selection of a medical specialty and and how that looked. I've always been kind of a people person and I come from a family of people, people, people. Uh, I, uh, my dad was a salesman and churn salesman. My um, oldest sister is now a retired school teacher. My other sister is a salesperson herself and my brother's a, a orthopedic surgeon. And my mom uh, went to med school late. She was the oldest person to graduate from USC medical school ever at the age of 51. So my senior year in high school was her first year of medical school at USC. And so I, I was exposed to medicine early. I wasn't sure I wanted to do it too, or if it was for me. So when I went off to college, I, I did uh, do the pre-medicine requirements and I majored in psychology, which I was interested in. And that was a nice marriage between my interests and also pursuing a field in medicine. And then I had a crossroads, so to speak, uh, at various points in my life, uh, music versus uh, pursuits of me medicine and academia. and always kind of decided to keep both as best I could. And of course, medicine took the, the most of my attention for over a decade. But then 
when I went into private practice uh, and started to build, build some more balance in my life, my wife gave me a card in 2005 for my birthday saying, it's time for you to get back into your music. And I said, wow, that's really a great gift. And uh, I don't think she realized it was going to end up with me going on a world tour for a year and a half with Sublime with Rome. But um, suffice it to say, it's been a pretty blessed life to be exposed to the musicians that I, I get to play with and to have the medical career that I have. It's a, it's quite a balance and I, I, I love it. Yes. I really like that you strike that balance and exercise both parts of your brain and continue to pursue your, your passions in, in both medicine and music. Um, Todd, you're a partner in a small medical practice and we're hearing a lot now in the news about solo and small practices really starting to struggle in the face of this COVID, COVID pandemic. Can you tell us about your practice and about how it's how it's been affected by COVID-19? Well, sure. I want to qualify anything I say by, by stating that there are always people that are absolutely worse off than I am and facing greater challenges. There's no question that this economy is affecting just about everybody. And, uh, you know, I, I, in a lot of ways, I'm thanking my lucky stars. I went into family practice in my own four walls rather than having to face the war zone that's going on in New York City or elsewhere. And perhaps we'll get called up someday to, to help out in that. But uh, they're the real heroes going through uh, really a, a, this this tidal wave of this pandemic and uh, on the front line. So my heart goes out to them. Um, and then financially, just like any other small business, uh, doctors who are who own their own practices are in small business. First of all, there's we're less than 10% of all physicians are, are small business owners still. So we're already kind of a marginalized group. But uh, for myself and my private practice and my wife, who is a dermatologist in her private practice, uh, especially her, she's been absolutely decimated uh, in terms of her small business. Uh, with with medicine, the, the overhead are, is really extreme. And so we rely on being able to see patients to uh, keep the lights on, pay our employees and do all that. And, and it stops, it stopped very abruptly a couple of weeks ago for my wife. Fortunately for primary care, you know, a lot of what we do, what attracted me to family medicine in the first place was, uh, being able to counsel patients, help them, uh, prioritize their healthcare needs, hope to inspire them in the various areas that of wellness and prevention. And so I can do about 90% of that on, uh, Skype or other uh, modalities to, to be able to do these telemedicine visits. I've been wanting to do remote telemedicine visits for years with a number of my patients, especially the elderly who have a tough time getting out of their home and coming to see me, paying for parking, waiting in the waiting room, coming inside. It's such an ordeal uh, that this has really proven a, a great success for my practice. And I hope that some level of telemedicine will continue to be reimbursed after the pandemic uh, wave is, is over. Um, so it's really been able to, you know, at least have me keep the lights on and retain my employees for the time being. It's great. Yeah. The telemedicine and virtual medicine piece has been really interesting with this COVID-19 pandemic. It, it's really pushed us down the road in terms of, of utilizing it. And I think shown us just how much more we can do in, in that realm than we had been doing previously. Can you talk a little bit even more about that in your own practice, like how much you were doing in terms of telemedicine or virtual care before this pandemic, how much you're doing now and thoughts about where, where you're going in your practice? Sure. Well, um, my practice is unique as a private practice. 
And I see roughly about eight to 10 patients per day. That's a usual half day for most primary care providers who are giving uh, medicine in an employed uh, corporate setting. Um, so my follow-ups are half hour, my physicals are a full hour, and um, I'm on call for my patients 24 seven. Uh, so accessibility is a key feature to my practice. So uh, of course, telemedicine enhances that. Um, I was already practicing it in terms of uh, phone calls and being available to my patients that uh, I think unfortunately has kind of gone by the wayside with a lot of corporate uh, models uh, these days where they either outsource it to a, a third party uh, for phone calls. I even knew of a practice that outsourced their scheduling. So the scheduling wasn't even done on site <laughs> for their patients. So you know, uh, the communication is is a tenant, a key tenant for me for uh, a good model for primary care. And this is just enhancing that for sure. One thing I do want to say about telemedicine visits that I've noticed in the three weeks that I've been doing them is I liken it to uh, listening to uh, your favorite band on Spotify versus going to see a live show. You know, you, you don't quite have the same uh, prescience and ability to touch, the ability to face someone face-to-face, eye-to-eye, get all the, the visual cues um, that you can in a, a true office setting. So I don't think telemedicine is going to take over uh, traditional uh, visits. And a lot of, of what I appreciate about being a family doctor is that personal touch. So it's, it's just an interesting thing that we all have to negotiate as we use this technology. Right. And I like how you brought up the idea of enhancing communication, because I think that's probably the greatest way that this tool will be used is not to replace in-person communication, but to enhance communication, particularly in primary care, but in a lot of other specialties, too. We can look at it that way. Absolutely. What has been your patient's response to the expanded use of telemedicine and virtual care? Yeah, it's been quite positive. Um, There was about a week where our staff had to really, I had to develop a script and we had to orient every patient to what it is and how it works. And the fallback was like, look, if this, if this visit doesn't work, we'll, we'll obviously we'll see you in the office. We'll take precautions and, and do what we need to do, do to keep ourselves safe. But um, let's try it, you know? And after a week or so, I think everybody's gotten on board and it's been uh, completely a a positive experience. I think people understand that, uh, they appreciate they can do the visit from their home or their office and not have to take the added time to uh, make the trek down to the office. So it's it's been wonderful. Right. It's, it's kind of like making uh, lemonade out of a, a lemon situation. Completely. Todd, how are your patients reacting to this pandemic that we're all experiencing? And specifically within that, I'd like to hear what types of emotional reactions that you're both witnessing and seeing. Yeah, uh, it's interesting because there's been a few phenomenon in in our career where I've noticed kind of the same uh, level of angst and anxiety and stress that's created around certain events. Um, I really saw it uh, in my first year practice uh, when 9-11 happened, um, where there was true trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, heightened anxiety um, that was rampant throughout the population. And um, fortunately, I, I feel like that's one of my strengths. Um, and, and what brought me to medicine and, and psychology was an interest in, in therapy and in helping people out with, uh, with stress in general. I feel like stress is a major killer uh, and, has, and really should be prioritized in any specialty 
as a potential cause of, of death and disease. So I, I feel very comfortable talking around those issues and feel like uh, my patients benefit as well from that. But I saw it from 9-11. I saw it from the 2008 collapse. I saw it when Trump got elected. And now uh, I see it with this pandemic. Uh, and it's, it, it's about at the level as 9-11 uh, was, in my opinion. Yes. Um, and I'd like to actually talk a little bit more about stress since we're on that topic and kind of ask you how you're t- talking with your patients about it and what kind of advice that you're giving them to try to manage stress here, because there is a lot of unknown about what's happening with COVID and where we're going and how long it will last. And, you know, that creates fear and anxiety and, and stress, as you say. So tell me a bit about what, how you're talking to your patients about it. Sure. Well, it, it all gets down to the basics. And I, ha- I developed a five, five pillars of health that I discuss with everybody at their routine uh, physicals, but also throughout whenever I see patients. Um, and it's diet, uh, sleep, exercise, stress levels, and it's, uh, of course, and then it's your relationships. And you have to pay attention to all these things on a daily basis. You have to touch them on a daily basis in order to stay healthy and well. And that doesn't change with the pandemic. So unfortunately, one of the um, generic responses to stress and anxiety is to do the opposite of that. You want to eat worse foods, comfort fruit foods and sugars. You don't really feel like exercising. Your motivation's down. Uh, you don't feel like reaching out to others for support. And so what I stress to people is that, look, you really have to work on uh, what your body wants on a daily basis to nourish it, to get good sleep and, and work on those on a daily basis to keep them in balance through this crisis. I, I tell them about residency, which was one of the most stressful uh, times in my life. And I like, you know, to drink coffee in the morning and have a beer once in a while. But I noticed on my toughest rotations where you're on call every fourth night, not getting any sleep, you could handle it for a couple of weeks as a young 20 year old. It's like fine. But then after a couple of weeks, if you didn't stop drinking caffeine and if you weren't getting sleep when you could and you were either abusing your body with uh, drugs or other substances, alcohol or, or having other stresses in your life with relationships, then everything could potentially break down. And I saw that happen to some of my colleagues. Um, so, you know, it really hit home at that point and where I developed this kind of model that, hey, look, you know, you really have to pay attention to these details as you go through this. And I've noticed I've had to really watch it with my kids who don't have the same structure in their lives. They can't see their friends. They're now not on the same time schedule for sleep or using their phones. So I, I, I last week I was just appalled at how much screen time they were having on their phones and had to put limits on that, you know, so you got to pay attention to these small things because over time they'll create more stress in your life and eventually disease if you don't pay attention. So I'm hearing a lot in there, Todd, about maintaining and, and if you don't have them already developing good, healthy habits and also an idea around structure and routines, which is something that when I have had uh, mental health professionals as guests on this podcast, they have stressed the importance of developing structure and routine in this in the face of this pandemic, where our structures and routines are getting upset. And they, just as you say, talked very specifically about the importance of that for children and young adults who who really need that in their lives. Yeah, there's no question that uh, that you have to build that in because this is the perfect storm for anxiety. You know what what causes anxiety and exacerbates anxiety is that f- is that fear of the unknown, 
um, as well as feeling out of control and then having it prolonged over time. You know, our stress response, our fight or flight response is really evolutionary there for us to flee from a dangerous situation or to fight when there's an onslaught from a marauder or um, to get out of the way so or to procreate. So it's there to turn on and turn off very quickly. And then you go about your day. The saber-toothed tiger comes along, you climb up a tree with your stress response, it goes away and it shuts off. But with the chronic stress response, like this pandemic inf infuses into our system, is a chronic um, release of that adrenaline. And if you look at all of the, the physiologic responses to adrenaline, a faster heart rate, your blood pressure goes up, your heart and your blood vessels are more irritable. Uh, it absolutely creates a, a perfect storm within your body that can cause things like acute heart attack, stroke, your blood pressure can go up and, th and things of that nature. Your immune system uh, starts to degrade. The blood flow goes away from your stomach and intestines because it's going into your arms and your legs because you're ready to, to go for it. And it can start to uh, degrade the lining of your stomach, for example. So these are all things that I'm seeing in my office. Uh, this last weekend, I had a patient who had severe abdominal pain that I suspected was an ulcer from the stress response. Seeing a lot of high blood pressure, headaches, and of course, uh, not just emotional anxiety, but I think a lot of our emotions and anxiety get translated through physiologic mechanisms in our bodies. Right. And you mentioned, Todd, your, that the effect that chronic stress can have on your blood pressure and the effect that it can have on your immune system and, and other organ systems as well with your heart. And these are exactly the things that we want to keep tuned up so that if we do get infected, that you're not having these other chronic health problems that may create a drag on your body or, or affect your immune system, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, what's really uh, on a deeper level, what is really important to keep in mind is that what we're trying to do uh, with any stress is to try to build in acceptance and forgiveness and peace. You're trying to create a peace of mind. And the only way you do that is really to give yourself in, you know, give up on the resistance. Resistance equals pain, resistance equals frustration, and resistance equals those, those, that tightness in your chest. And you gotta let, you gotta let it kind of flow through you as best you can. And so, Practicing meditation techniques, exercise in and of itself, a good conversation allows to take advantage of the relaxation response, which is the opposite physiologic effect, uh, effect of the fight or flight response. Right. And you mentioned the idea of having a good conversation. That can be doubly difficult in this era of social distancing and we're being, when we're being told to stay home. And I had another guest who suggested really as part of a structure in your life, trying to make some time each day to pick up the phone or to have a Zoom or Skype chat with a good friend or family member to try to maintain those social contacts and, and keep those conversations happening with an eye towards general wellness. Science, science, science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes. Mm. Join my 
myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Absolutely. And and also to turn the TV off. You know, uh, there's a lot of chatter about conspiracy theories that a lot of a lot of my younger friends are are quibbling about. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And so the more that you can communicate and realize everybody has those same fears and to keep everybody in check, so to speak, on what's real, what's not real, what are we looking towards, I think is really important to maintain those levels of communication. Absolutely. So Todd, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk a bit about our nation's health policies and the actions um, that we're seeing on the front page of the news. Can you outline in your kind of your own thoughts about what you see as our biggest successes and our biggest failures so far as a country and our approach to this pandemic? Sure. Um, yeah, I got some thoughts. You know, if you look at our response in terms of a healthcare system, you it, it's easy to appreciate what we do well and what we do poorly. Uh, and this is drawn out with this pandemic as well. Um, there's a reason why the United States has a very low death rate compared to other countries. You know, we may be at the bottom or near the bottom in terms of the World Health Organization uh, list of countries in terms of our overall health care. But I, I always maintain that if you have a major health problem, there is nowhere else you want to be other than the United States. Uh, we have the best uh, morbidity and mortality rates with cancer treatments, the best with heart disease and open heart surgery, the best with stroke and brain diseases, the best with most chronic uh, diseases that require heavy-duty medicine and, and, and monitoring and technology. And that's bearing out in this with our use of uh, ICUs and what we do to spread good information about what's going on with this virus and how best to treat it. So I think we can be very proud in terms of our technological superiority and successes in the United States. And hopefully we can send out our, as much as we can to other countries who are suffering from this virus. But uh, alternatively, on the other hand, we're doing, we're, we're, we have this blind spot on probably the biggest issue is always the prevention side, always the social uh, side where we could do things in a more coordinated manner, a more efficient manner um, to help prevent this disease. So you saw how long it took us to start even considering wearing masks and even giving the opposite information out on the CDC website about that. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, I, we don't need to get political with what the administration has been saying over and over again, giving out false signaling in terms of uh, misinformation and things that were said and then uh, step back a little bit. But one thing that I do think is a huge thing that I think they're starting to realize is we need adequate testing. And that's coming out this week in the news. Uh, when you look at a, a country like South Korea, when you look at uh, Taiwan and how they were able to uh, flatten that curve, uh, testing over 10,000 uh, people a day when we didn't even, uh, we weren't even up to 10,000 people total testing, I think a week ago, uh, goes to show you kind of one of the ways, one of the blind spots in our healthcare system, which has been uh, completely kind of ignored uh, over time because of our uh, capitalist natures in this country and because of how our healthcare system is structured. One huge mistake I see in the testing is that the federal government mandated that the testing would be free. I think that does not work in our population. It does not work with our healthcare system. Our healthcare system is uniquely built on capitalism. 
I know it's tough. The testing is not uh, perfect. Uh, there are some tests that are, are quite sensitive and specific, uh, but maybe not quite readily available. But I, I'm astounded at how slow that response is. Because think about what that's, that, that's going to do not only to people in preventing the spread of this disease, but getting back to work in our economy. If you can do a test, a simple test, even an at-home test, that may not be perfect, but it's better than no information. And then you can act on that, whether you can go outside, whether you can get back to work, whether that uh, you can inform yourself, whether you might be immune or might not be immune. I know there's a, a lot of debate over whether or not you develop antibodies is one thing, whether or not that means you're immune is a completely other. But uh, in general, that, that holds true. So I, I think there's a lot that we need to learn about what's going on, but I think there's a lot in terms of how we can conquer this pandemic and our economy uh, difficulties with, you know, knowing <laughs> who has it and who doesn't. Right. And I'm hopeful that with everything you say there, that in the future, we'll be able to look back at this and actually learn from it and adjust our approach and our preparedness. Because, you know, with these outbreaks, it's it's really a matter of when and not if, and it's going to happen again. And you know, some of the countries in Asia, like South Korea, were more prepared because they dealt with SARS back in 2003. And so I'm hopeful that our nation and our healthcare system actually takes some learnings from this to, to go forward and do things better next time. Yeah. And there's no, there's no question that we're getting a, a new appreciation for what government should do and could do well, efficiencies and lack of efficiencies in government. And I think this is going to serve as a huge wake-up call uh, to get things straight. Right. So, Todd, beyond the health implications of these issues, what do you see as the behavioral implications related to both COVID-19 and how our country has addressed the pandemic? Um, the social situations and, and, and kind of what mark this is going to leave on how we how we interact and how we behave uh, is uh, clearly remains to be seen. But I think, uh, for one, you're going to see a lot more masks. You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to uh, an Asian country uh, such as Japan, but I, it struck me when I went to about 15, 20 years ago now uh, that it was very common on the subways to see people in masks, um, people keeping their social distance, uh, bowing instead of shaking hands. I think that we're, uh, as a society, gonna be able to incorporate some of these strategies to keep that safe social distancing. Uh, of course, I, I don't want it to go too far where uh, we're just isolating ourselves to a point of uh, uh, of harming ourselves. But um, I do think that's absolutely one aspect that I think is going to uh, resonate through society. I think on a deeper level in terms of appreciation for what science and scientists do, what teachers and teachers do, what good politicians and leaders do, and for what people do for their work that are critical to the pipeline, whether it be uh, grocery store clerks or suppliers. I'm hoping that there's gonna be a renewed focus, renewed attention and renewed appreciation for people who spend their day working to serve others and working to help others and a less reliance on people who serve themselves and who serve a GDP, which I, I, I've always kind of bristled at, that the sign of our health in our nation was the, the height of our GDP in our stock market. And uh, I really feel like that's uh, such a secondary thing in everyone's lives that I'm hoping that people really take it to heart and start to consider building our society, building up our middle class through uh, honest 
work that really serves others rather than self-satisfying endeavors. Yes, this pandemic is really shining a spotlight uh, on that very issue. Um, I'm going to ask a bit of a philosophical question here. How do you think this pandemic will lead to paradigm shifts in our perspectives on things like globalism, consumerism, and the environment? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, We already had an administration that was um, getting more protectionist and isolationist and and going away from the policies of globalism and global capitalism. Um, And it's interesting that uh, he was right. Uh, on this pandemic issue to uh, close the borders, so to speak. I mean, maybe he could have closed them sooner in certain respects, but but uh, I think that's going to have a lasting impact on uh, the global economy. I think that uh, people are realizing uh, in the United States, at least our reliance on countries like China and elsewhere for whether it be oil in the Middle East or or cheap goods or technology from China, um, like, you know, how big do you need your television? Do we really need to have uh, such uh, a reliance on goods and services from other countries? And I do think that's a path forward to rebuilding our middle class, as I mentioned, is uh, making it in America. I don't, I, don't, I don't see that as a negative. I see that as a positive. Maybe not for the rest of the world. We do have to think about that. And I'm, I'm not smart enough to comment how we <laughs> bolster the world while we bolster ourselves, too. Right. And do you have thoughts about paradigm shifts as it relates to environmental impacts? I do. You know, um, there, I've talked to a buddy of mine who's a firefighter in the Long Beach um, Fire Department, and he's been put on a task force to really think about um, where to allocate resources and when. He's on. He's got his finger literally on the pulse of this community and dealing with the virus. And we've had a lot of conversations, both philosophical and otherwise. And he brought up a theory called the Gaia theory which is uh, thinking about a, a, a paradigm of the planet as its own living organism and what a virus, a pandemic like this means uh, to Mother Earth here. You have uh, reports of being able to see the bottom of the canal in, in Venice, uh, dolphins swimming in, in the canals in Venice for the first time. Um, I noticed in Long Beach, we're a big port city, and I immediately saw a huge reduction in the amount of smog and how clear the air was and how fresh the water was. I think that this is a a great opportunity as a wake-up call for us to move towards a more healthy planet that uh, humans treat with respect. Um, I'm hoping that happens, but uh, I do fear that it's gonna, it may be business as usual as we go back here uh, to our previous uh, structure and economy and, and focus on that GDP, but hopefully not. So I think you just touched on my my next question a little bit, but as it comes to globalism, consumerism, and our, and the environment, do you think these new perspectives and what we're seeing now will hold, or or do you think we're going back to our old ways and our old views? Well, it really depends, doesn't it? it depends on our leadership, and uh, it's going to be variable. Obviously, different states in our in our union have different perspectives on protecting the environment and and what's important uh, to. Uh, whatever community. So there is going to be great variability, but uh, we're going to need leadership on the highest level to uh, articulate how we can move forward in an economic environment that's stable to bring some of these things to the fore so that we do have policies. Now, you can quibble about global warming or the effect of human beings on that or how fast it's happening or even if it's happening, it's almost beside the point to me. 
it seems that our our when you look at our leadership, the the debate centers around issues that have nothing to do with what we can really do on a daily basis uh, to help our planet. And I think we can all agree that it's a good thing to think about some of these things in different ways and even structure our economy in different ways so that we're not so focused on just making a dollar. Look at our, our, our pharmaceutical industry and how bloated uh, the pricing is for certain drugs. I mean, that should be a service-centric industry. And when you have these companies that are publicly traded companies with board of directors whose sole purpose is to make a profit, they don't even have it in their equation to help as many people as possible. So uh, I'm hoping that our leadership can hold foot, feet to the fire, can get back to a perspective of service, as I was talking about before, and that we can prioritize that to the very highest level instead of what we've been doing for the past several decades. Yeah, really interesting perspectives there, Todd. I appreciate that. As we start to wind down this interview, is there anything else you wanted to discuss for our audience or anything that I didn't ask you that you think is important? Uh, no, I think we've covered it all. I, I, I know there's worlds of information that are more specific to the COVID virus and transmissions, but I know you, you've had other very uh, uh, clear and cognizant and, so, and consciously aware and smart people on this podcast to give you the details on that. So I'm going to leave it to them. Okay, sounds good. Um, one thing that I've been asking guests on the show, Todd, is if they want to give a shout out to any small businesses in their community, restaurants, things along those lines, with the idea that the small businesses and the people who own and work for them are really suffering at this time with the pandemic. So in your own communities, any places you want to give a shout out to and encourage people to use their services? Um, sure. Uh, I know the owners of George's Greek Cafe uh, down the street, and I know uh, them personally and with the wonderful people, whether it's them um, or uh, other people in the community. Uh, I live close to Second Street in Belmont Shore, and it's a ghost town right now. And I really feel for all the restaurants, bars, uh, music venues. Uh, in my, uh, my second job as a musician, uh, I know firsthand what that's done to my business uh, and my band. And everyone I play with is a full-time musician, and they're not very full-time right now. There's absolutely no income coming in for them. It's a very tough time for people in the entertainment business. Um, interestingly, in California, uh, we in the entertainment business got hit with the law AB5 this year, which put a, a screeching halt to being able to play in venues without becoming a full-time employee. And so we we're just trying to negotiate that. And within a month, the COVID virus uh, hit us again. So we had two things that destroyed our industry in California within a month. And that's just unbelievable and unprecedented. Um, I also want to give a shout out to our homeless population. Uh, that's another population that's absolutely suffering right now. Uh, just to make a quick comment, uh, I do not uh, see pro appropriate uh, ideas being put to the fore in terms of how to care for that population. It is absolutely a mental health issue and we need to treat people's mental health and well-being. We need to get people into rehab centers. Uh, just, just building cheap housing and putting them in cheap housing can actually do uh, a worse, uh, you, you have worse outcomes for people who are on drugs, uh, people who are addicted, people who are, um, are mentally ill. So that's not enough. We need to rebuild our mental health care system in the state of California to be able to appropriately and morally do the right thing for these people. 
So, and, and, and that, I think that's good. A great shout out to uh, our local police, fire, public health care systems, local governments and agencies. I know everybody's working their, their tails off to, to do the right thing. And uh, they're, they're the true heroes. So hats off to them. I appreciate those shout outs, Todd. And, and I'm sure those in your community um, particularly will appreciate hearing that out of, out of your mouth and, and with such um, good thoughts around it. I want to thank you on behalf of our audience and on behalf of this podcast for taking the time out of your busy day and to share your expertise and perspectives with the audience. We're going to do something a little bit different at the end of this show since you are a musician and have generously offered to let us use a piece of your music as an outro. So I'll ask you to go ahead and and close us out and introduce your piece of music. Sure. Um, I formed Espangelia the Month Club for families and kids after coming off a tour with a band called Sublime with Rome. And I was in the uh, the band started out of an idea that grew when I was watching Princess and the Frog in uh, in one of the tour buses with our drummer Bud Gaw, who had his uh, young daughter on on board. And uh, I turned to him and said, "Wouldn't it be great to do musics that our kids could appreciate and listen to? Because not all the lyrics with Sublime were ever." Uh, you know, palatable to all uh, generations. So he loved the idea. We started this band and uh, built a home studio, started to compose music more. And so this is one of the songs that I wrote called uh, Enjoy the Show, which is all about living in the moment, not rushing to to the next and, and really uh, paying attention to what's right in front of you. And uh, so I hope you enjoy it. If you do enjoy it, let me know. I'll uh, compose some uh, theme music for your uh, uh, budding podcast here. Uh, you won't have to twist my arm on, on that one, Todd. I appreciate it. So everybody, hope you enjoy uh, the song. Enjoy the show.
That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.